Who am I to argue with Harvard Business Review? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Hi, I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined by John Maxfield today because it is banking day. But we're actually going to start off on a story that's not related to banking. But before we get into that, hi, John. How have you been doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me, Allison. Good. You just got back from a nice little trip, didn't you? That, that is correct. My wife and I got away for 10 days to Italy, which was, which was fantastic. As you know, we have twin uh, boy toddlers, so it was great to, to get away for a bit. Right. I can't imagine taking two twin toddler boys all over Europe. So it's awesome that you got a break in your back, and I'm sure you missed us too. So. Let's of course. Just, let's just get into it then. First story today is that Harvard Business Review has crunched the numbers and they've released their list of the best performing CEOs. So the winner, I guess you could say, the number one best performing CEO was Jeff Bezos. But Amazon has kind of had a rough go of it lately. In fact, the stock is down about 25% since the end of last year. Um, so. I don't know. What did you think? What did you think of the number one slot going to Jeff Bezos? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, I think it's probably pretty appropriate. You know, if you look at what's gone on with Amazon over the last two quarters, they've they've lost money in two consecutive quarters, and investors are now it looks like they're getting anxious for the company to start making money, which is somewhat understandable because it is a twenty-year-old company. It's no longer a startup that that just has revenue but doesn't have any earnings. However, if you really dig into the story of what's going on at Amazon, and particularly over the last five years, what you'll see is just a, a, a remarkable transformation of a company that was basically just before just a website to a now massive capital-intensive retailer that's, that's placing these huge uh, fulfillment centers outside of every major metropolitan area and this has only happened since, two, basically, uh, for all intents and purposes, has really only happened since 2010, 2011, when Amazon cleared up some tax stuff that allowed them to have physical footprints in cities. And now it has, I think it's expanded its, its fulfillment center since 2010 uh, fourfold, going from something like 15 million square feet to 60 million square feet uh, in fulfillment center. Um, in fulfillment centers, and they've also now gone and have the they have these fulfillment centers in all but three of the largest metropolitan centers in the country, which gives them the ability to provide goods on a same day service or a next day service, and it just it, it just gives them much better saturation in all of these major markets in what is the largest uh, retail economy in the world. So they built their list based on total shareholder returns. So over the last decade, Amazon has returned 745% compared to the S&P's 120%. So they didn't look at stuff like uh, employee satisfaction, sustainability, other factors that surround being a CEO. It was basically, how did your stock perform? Um, and one thing that I thought was interesting was that Jeff Bezos actually, um, they, they did crunch some numbers about being uh, more sustainable, employee satisfaction, customer satisfaction. And Bezos was actually number four on that list, whereas a lot of the other CEOs who made it in the top list for best performing maybe actually weren't that great in other parts of being a CEO. So I guess my question is, when you're looking at CEOs, 
I assume you're looking at something other than total shareholder return, but maybe not. Like, what are you, what are you looking for? Well, you know, theoretically, over the long term, everything will factor in and then filter down into shareholder return, right? If you have really low morale among your employees because you're not treating them well, well, over the long term, that's going to start to be reflected uh, in your shareholder return because you'll have less productivity from all of them and everything like that. So theoretically, basically everything comes down to this number over multiple years. And when you look over a two-decade time span, while he may not be the best in all of these regards, um, he's certainly, to your point, relatively high up. And then when you add in the shareholder return part of that, um, I think it makes a strong case for Bezos being, if not the top, certainly among them. All right. Well, let's move on then. Now, this week you wrote an article talking about the one thing that great bank stocks all have in common. And I, we talked a lot about how to find great bank stocks because this show on Mondays is about banking and finance. Um, and specifically, we have talked about the importance of the low efficiency ratio, but define it for us again. So the efficiency ratio is basically just how much it costs a bank to generate every dollar of revenue. And, and the way it's calculated is by taking your operating expenses, which on a bank income statement, they're called non-interest expenses, and dividing that by total revenue. So let's say that a bank has, let's say, $100 million in revenue, but it costs uh, $55 million in operating expenses to generate that. Well, their efficiency ratio would be 55%. So you talk a bit in this article about two indirect effects of efficiency that make the ratio the most important metric for banks to follow. Dig, dig into that a little bit more for me. Right. Well, I mean, the efficiency ratio in and of itself is, is really important because if you're spending all your money on operating expenses, right, nothing's going to make it to the bottom line to then pass on to shareholders through either dividends, share buybacks, or an increasing of book value. But there are equally, I would argue, equally as important indirect effects. And one of the indirect effects that I've talked about a lot in the past is the relationship between a low efficiency ratio and your loan loss provisions. And so what we found or what, what you know if you look at the data what what you see is that banks that that spend very uh, or a relatively small proportion of their revenue on operating expenses have the innate ability to generate high shareholder returns so they're not forced to reach for yield in their loan portfolio and what that translates into is a better quality loan portfolio so when things turn south you don't have as many bad loans that then eat up that then eat up your revenue and turn into these massive losses cause banks to dilute their shareholders and on and on and on. Well, the other indirect effects, and I, I picked up on this um, just recently in listening to a presentation by um, the CEO of U.S. Bank Corp, which is arguably the best or one of the best banks in the country from both an operational standpoint and from a shareholder return standpoint. And he was talking about the relationship between the efficiency ratio and your credit ratings at the major credit agencies, which of course impacts the interest rate at which banks can um, borrow money from warehouse investor warehouse warehouse investors, and he was talking about how look if you have a low efficiency ratio, that means your profitability in general is going to be higher, which is going to which means that you're going to be able to sustain or better sustain your interest payments on loans. The credit rating agencies pick up on that. As a result, they give you a higher credit rate credit credit rating, and that will thereby lower your your interest expense because your lenders are going to reduce 
what they charge you on loans. So that is just another indirect effect of when you look at why having a low efficiency ratio is so critical for a bank um, that investors really need to keep their eye on. All right, low efficiency ratio, I'm sold, it's good. You said US Bank Corp is looking really good in that department. What other banks are also doing well? Well, you know, if you if you look at you know exclusively the efficiency ratio, you're going to have your New York Community Bank Corps, which is a small regional bank that kind of has a niche market um, in the New York metropolitan community area. You have M&T Bank, which is another regional bank that's based uh, in Buffalo, New York. Um, and then Wells Fargo is notoriously, and this goes back literally decades. Wells Fargo is notoriously uh, an excellent run bank from an efficiency standpoint. Cool. All right. Well, before we move on and talk about whether quantitative easing was worth it, I just wanted to remind everyone about a special offer just for our Where the Money Is audience. As you know, here at The Motley Fool, our goal is to help the world invest better. And Motley Fool Stock Advisor is The Motley Fool's flagship investing service. And over the past 12 years, the recommendations in Stock Advisor have more than tripled the market's return. And like I said, we have a special offer for you, our Where the Money Is audience, to get in on Stock Advisor and get some of our best stock picks. Just head to WTMI.Fool.com. That's WTMI.Fool.com. The WTMI stands for, of course, where the money is. All right, let's get into our deep dive here. As we learned, quantitative easing is coming to an end. Federal Reserve announced an end to it. it was just middle of last week to the bond buying program. And how did everyone react? Well, you know, we had you know, investors, analysts, commentators have been anticipating this for some time. It was in the middle of last year that it was first intimated that the Fed would do that, that, that it would quote unquote taper its bond buying program and it's been doing that ever since. But it was at that point, I think it was in May or June of last year, where we really saw the markets reacting to quantitative, the, the reduction or the, the threatened reduction of quantitative easing. So right, right. The, the most recent announcement wasn't that big of a deal. Right. So early on, this has been really controversial. Um, and people have been questioning whether it accomplished anything at all. I mean, I know, for one, it resulted in probably millions of hours of news coverage and chatter on CNBC and Bloomberg and even here at The Motley Fool. So what do you think? Was it worth it? That is a you know the all the the money that flowed through the media channels as a result of it. I didn't even think about that, but that's a that's a really good point. Um, okay, so here here let me frame the issue for you, Allison. So what we saw from uh, the the end of 2008, which is when the first round we had, so we had three rounds of quantitative easing. One that started in 2008, went into 09, then one in 2010, and then one started in 2012, and then went to until just recently. And what we've seen is that the Federal Reserve has expanded its balance sheet by about $3.6 trillion. And it's done that by going out and buying these long-term fixed income securities, namely US Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities. And it's done that in order to drive down the long-term interest rates. Okay, so that that was the purpose. The purpose was to drive down long-term interest rates. And the, the reason that it wanted to drive down long-term interest rates is because it wanted to boost the housing market. So how do you boost the housing market? We do it through the mortgage market because almost everybody, when they buy a house, and uh, does it with a mortgage. So if you look at whether or not they were successful um, in reducing the long-term interest rate, which is in, in specifically in the mortgage market, the answer is uh, categorically yes. I mean, they took it down from 
six to six and a half percent uh, prior to the start of these 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 three rounds of quantitative easing, and it bottomed out at like three point four percent. Now it's between four and four and five percent. So they dropped that that way way down. Now, so the question is, was you know boosting up the Fed's balance sheet by three point six trillion dollars? Uh, was it you know did we get an adequate return just by reducing interest rates that far? Uh, and that's really that's really the big issue. So then now that quantitative easing has ended, what does this say about the state of the economy? And does this mean that I need to go and like stock up on houses while the interest rates are low? Because some people are saying that the interest rates are going to go up as soon as March. Right. Well, so first, first of all, nobody knows when the interest rates will go up, right? I mean, I mean, it'd be nice to know that. And if you did know that, you could make a lot of money. I mean, if I knew that, you know, I'd be retired on some island somewhere. Um, however, you know, just speaking more generally in terms of uh, quantitative easing, now that, that that the Federal Reserve feels comfortable getting out of it, it, it is certainly a good sign that the economy is going in the right direction. However, if you look at there was a, one of the the people on the on the open market committee that helps the Federal Reserve um, dictate monetary policy, he dissented from the decision, saying that look. We shouldn't be doing this while inflation is still below our two percent target. Um, I think inflation is something like a percent and a half right now. And what that says is that look, if your inflation isn't high enough, your economy isn't growing at a quick enough pace. So then you threaten to have a situation like Europe is having, where it's pushing into a deflationary a deflationary scenario. Um, but that dissent aside, it's certainly a good sign that the economy is going in the right direction. That the Federal Reserve felt comfortable enough to reduce its bond buying program, thereby, you know, presumably at some point in the future, who knows when, interest rates will increase, which will then dampen uh, your economic activity. Uh, you dampen my economic activity. So you're telling me not to necessarily go out and buy a ton of houses, is what you're saying? Not that I. <laughs> you know what? I am. You, Allison, you do 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 whatever you feel like uh, is the best thing for you to do. Um, but I wouldn't base a decision on the fact that the Federal Reserve has now totally stopped um, buying long-term bonds. All right. <laughs> Let me just I'll put buy, it that way. I'll buy a house for other reasons then. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to cover it for today. Thank you to our audience for watching. Thank you, John, for walking me through all this banking details. And we'll see you again next week.